Hi friends, and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. And this is episode 85. My name is Mary and I'll be your host. And once again, my co-host and good friend, Ron, is pretty tied up in some of his projects, but hopefully he'll be back soon. So it'll just be me today. And we're talking about something very serious in our kiddos. I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Santoro, and he's from the Los Angeles Children's Hospital. And we are talking all about regression, or perhaps you might know it as regression syndrome. And this can be very devastating for our kids. And we have a pretty open and frank discussion about this. And if you suspect that your child may have it and what you can do about it. So maybe grab a pen and paper and listen in. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm talking with Dr. John Santoro, who is a pediatric neurologist at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles and specializes in neuroimmunology and Down syndrome. Welcome, Dr. John. Thank you, Mary. Happy to be here and uh, looking forward to chatting. Yes, me too. And I'm really appreciative of your time because I'm sure you're quite busy. Now, today we're going to be talking about quite a serious topic in our Down syndrome community, and it's regression. But first, can you tell us a little bit about you and why you have chosen to specialize in this area? Yeah, so I I like to joke with people that I became both a a researcher by accident and a a clinician who evaluates persons with Down syndrome by accident. (laughs) Uh, My start was that I I knew I wanted to become a pediatric neurologist. I've always worked with persons with intellectual disabilities. That was really important to me. Um, But I I didn't find my path until about halfway through residency. I I had a a young girl I was taking care of who had a really bad outcome uh, associated with Moya Moya disease. And that's actually where my journey got started. I started to learn more about what Down syndrome was and how it predisposes you to all of these different conditions. But even my clinical training in neuroimmunology was more because I was interested in it, not because I really thought, you know, I, I like to, you know, give myself a pat on the back and say, I knew this all along. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I went into clinical neuroimmunology because it was cool. Um, but I didn't think at the time that it was going to really overlap with my interest in research in Down syndrome. And now with regression, it actually seems to be this perfect storm of a, uh, a potentially neuroinflammatory condition that happens in persons with Down syndrome. Wow. So you didn't really have, like, I'm always curious as to how people get involved in the Down syndrome community, especially like medical professionals like yourself. Like, so you didn't have anyone like in your family or close to you with Down syndrome. It was just started in your residency when you came across the young girl with Moya Moya. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. I feel like everybody, you know, <laughs> knows somebody with, with Down syndrome. It's, you know, I, I interacted with a few people, you know, when I was younger, mm-hmm. but I never had any family members, you know, with it. So it was really just kind of having this shared experience with a family that I was taking care of. Wow. Well, we're so happy that that happened and that you're, you know, doing the work that you're doing now. Cause I know a lot of families are so appreciative of that. Now, a few episodes ago, I had on Dr. Liz head and we were talking about down syndrome and Alzheimer's and she suggested I speak with you because regression came up. And then when I, and I know very little about regression, but when I started posting about it in some Facebook groups I'm on, like 
looking for information and questions. Like I was absolutely stunned at the response. Um, so can you first tell us what is Down syndrome regression and is there a proper term for it? Because I've heard different things, like I've heard Down syndrome regression, just regression, uh, regression syndrome, or does it really matter? Yeah, and I think that this is a real complicated question because we've kind of known about this for 80 years. And the first report of you know what we think is Down syndrome regression disorder was reported in 1946. It was called oh, wow. catatonic psychosis. Uh, and then we kind of sat on it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know many of us who have evaluated persons with Down syndromes, Down syndrome on a clinical basis, have known that like if you're a little bit too old for a diagnosis of autism and you're a little bit too young for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there's this group right in the middle where we've never really figured out what the cause is. And so when we look at the symptoms, it's really this acute onset deterioration in cognition. So often our, our persons who suffer from this will have insomnia, they'll have bradykinesia, which is a slowing of movement, they'll have catatonia, which is a muscle stiffness problem, they'll often be in their own world, sometimes that gets labeled as encephalopathy, where they'll just kind of stare out the window and, and just not be communicative. Our uh, individuals who have this will become mute or start whispering their speech, they'll become delusional or kind of off, you know, uh, as if they're kind of within their own TV program that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. And it's really sudden. And I think okay. that that's the key feature here is that we know Alzheimer's is very slow. Mm -hmm. We know that autism usually is kind of the symptoms are usually there before, but they come, become unmasked as people grow uh, from a developmental standpoint. But really, this is otherwise healthy individuals who suddenly just fall off the cliff for unclear reasons. Um, then the naming of it is a challenge. I mean, it's been referred to as unexplained regression in Down syndrome, Down syndrome disintegrative disorder. Uh, we did release a consensus statement across some of the experts in this area, um, just agreeing on we're going to say that this is Down syndrome regression disorder. So that way it's one area in okay. the literature. But I think regression is a broad term, right? You can have regression if you're sick and you're mm -hmm. in bed for a couple of days. You can have regression associated with being outside of your normal school services with COVID. So really what we're talking about today, Down syndrome regression disorder, is a diagnosis of exclusion. We've ruled all of the other things out, and this is the only situation that's left for us clinically. Okay. So based on what you said, it's probably always been there, but nobody really knew what it was or what to call it, I'm, I'm assuming. It's, you know, hard to know, right? I wasn't mm. there. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't born in, in 1946, <laughs> unfortunately. So I, I think a lot of the time, this was something that got chalked up to being psychiatric, that got mm. chalked up to being part of Down syndrome. Uh. Um, and don't forget, I mean, in 1946, the life expectancy for a person with Down syndrome was 10. Today, it's <gasps> 60, right? We've learned so much more because you know, individuals with Down syndrome are living into the seventh decade of life now, which is fantastic, but mm -hmm. has unmasked a lot of other things. We didn't know Alzheimer's existed in persons with Down syndrome at a higher rate in 1940 because people weren't living that long. Yes. Wow. 10. That's just so unbelievable. So when would you say that it was actually recognized like, like as regression? Yeah, so 
hard to say. In the medical literature, there are some case reports that start popping up in the early 2000s. And I think that that was the first semblance of like, wow, this, this really does seem to be a unique clinical scenario that doesn't, again, doesn't fit autism, doesn't fit a, a clear psychiatric condition, and doesn't fit a early onset Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the mid 2010s, that's when we started to get these larger case series. Uh, Dr. Worley out of the Duke group had published a, a paper in 2015 on this. Um, uh, Mercher, who's out of the uh, European Union, then published another study on this. And now it's, it's definitely taken hold wow. to the point where you know, we've now got a pretty good phenotype of, of what this looks like, you know, in terms of symptoms, in terms of onset, which has allowed us to now say, all right, this seems to be a distinct clinical entity. Wow. So really kind of recent to be like, you know, which in some ways is a little scary that it's gone that long without really being properly recognized, I guess. Yeah. But so glad that it, it's being recognized now. So what are the signs of regression? I know like you did touch on it that like many parents say that the onset is very sudden and very obvious. And one parent even told me she knows the exact day that it happened to her daughter. Yeah, we, we hear that a lot, that there's a day, that there's a week, that it was like, you know, everything was going fine and then this happened. Mm -hmm. um, when we get to down to some of the details though, it, it's often that things are really ramping up, you know, over this short period of time. So usually we say 12 weeks, but to be very frank, we've made that number up, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, th this was agreed upon to say like, if it's slower than 12 weeks, it could be related to something else, but we really don't know still. And I think that as we released the criteria, which, you know, I was mentioning before, and this time frame. When we published it, we said we have to go back and review this in five years because the information that we'll know at that time may change what diagnostic criteria are helpful. Or we may, we may find that more patients actually take 16 weeks instead of 12 weeks. So we want to be inclusive, mm -hmm. but also as scientific as possible. Okay. Now, when we had when I had Dr. Liz on, like it was for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there was a very specific time frame for it, unlike the typical population. But for regression in Down syndrome, what is typically the age of onset? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, the teenage females tend to have onset shortly after puberty. The males are a little bit later. Um, so okay. boys, it tends to be kind of kind of late high school age, like 16, 17, 18. Mm -hmm. um, our, our core range where we're saying this is higher suspicion than not is 10 to 30. I think okay. obviously you get kind of a taper off as you get mm -hmm. to the extremes, but under 10, we really have to make sure that this isn't autism, that this isn't something else. But, you know, there are likely some smaller, you know, volume cases in that direction. And then over 30, you know, if we're looking at what is your risk, Alzheimer's is starting to take mm -hmm. over at that time. Not that at 30, your risk is terribly high, but we know that the, you know, the machinery is in place for that particular uh, malady to develop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. One uh, woman I talked to, her daughter was eight, which is like extremely young. Um, and it took a lot of while. It did take some time for them to get that proper diagnosis and to get to the right doctor. So, um, but that's so devastating at eight to have that. So, yeah. and I think it's, it raises an important thing, you know, important topic rather is that 
just because somebody's out of our kind of predefined window doesn't mean that they don't warrant the evaluation. I think mm -hmm. that, that that's that's the biggest take home message I could possibly communicate is that as we've done more and more testing, we've mm -hmm. found more and more cases. And that's how we originally found that this was potentially autoimmune in a minority of patients was that we, we found abnormalities in testing that wasn't getting done before. And as much, again, as, as, as I would like to give myself a pat on the back, <laughs> the more cases I evaluate, the less certain I am of what the diagnostic studies will show. I've been, you know, now I try to guess. Oh, this is going to be one who shows inflammation. Oh, this one is going to have a, an abnormal MRI. And, you know, it's 50-50 at best in terms of what my ability to predict is. And that just means I need to rely on the actual testing instead of my own preconceived notions about what I think that this is. Wow. So because it's still relatively new, like where it's been recognized, like how, how prevalent would you say this is in our Down syndrome population? It's very hard to say. I think that a lot of individuals who have reached out to our clinic or come in for evaluations have had symptoms for a long time, that they finally have a, a name to what they've been experiencing. And so I think that there's a little bit of a rush on resources right now. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I think ultimately we'll find that this is relatively rare, but I, I can't give you a, you know, a hard number because I still think we're, we're kind of blind as far as who out in the community even has this and maybe has not sought help or has not, you know, been able to put a name to it. Okay. Now you kind of touched on it. Like a few parents, when I was like looking for information, unfortunately you told me that doctors have just told them, this is just a down syndrome thing. You know, and I think part of that is because doctors often aren't all that familiar with what Down syndrome really is and what it entails. And I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this too. So do you have any suggestions on what parents can do when they encounter this? Because I mean, the parents know their kids and they know that there is something off. And then the doctor is just sort of saying, oh, it's just a Down syndrome thing. Yep. What can parents do? I, the, what I recommend and the reason why we started doing this in the first place is I asked myself, if this individual did not have Down syndrome, what would I be doing differently? And the answer was, if, if I had a normal development, you know, young woman at age 14 who suddenly stopped speaking and was hallucinating, we'd be rushing them to the hospital. Why are we not doing that with persons with Down syndrome? And I think that that is such a powerful thing to say to a physician, whether it's the primary care doctor or a subspecialist is, would you be doing something different if they didn't have Down syndrome? And, and sometimes the answer is yes. And you know that's where we really need to go back to the drawing board and make sure we're doing exactly what we need to be doing because saying something is part of Down syndrome is not a sufficient answer, mm -hmm. and it's a reason why we've you know been slow to evolve in in this field over time. But we're making progress. I think more and more, you know, doctors are getting on board. But this was the rationale even for creating. We created a something called a quick facts document, something that is for parents that they can take to the doctor's office and use that as a mechanism to communicate with their doctor to say, this is what I'm worried about. And here's, you know, it includes some literature, it includes very broad categories. So it helps serve as a discussion point because I think it's hard. I mean, we've all mm -hmm. been there, um, whether it's with a loved one, whether it's with ourselves, you go into the doctor's office and you forget what to say. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you suddenly become very jumbled and I don't think it's on purpose, but I think having this document that has been, you know, something standard has been helpful for families to use as a discussion point, at least. 
So, and where could families get that? So the Down syndrome medical interest group has it on their website. Um, we, we created kind of a brand version of that. And if people, you know, are having difficulty, they can, you know, certainly reach out to our clinic and we can provide one as well. Okay. And we'll put links in the show notes as well. So it makes it easy for people, but I loved what you said. Like if this child didn't have Down syndrome, how would, how would they be treated differently? And I think that's really turning the tables and, you know, because I think that's what happens a lot. And I have, I have even used that, um, something totally different when my daughter had a bad accident and lost her tooth and the doctor didn't want to put it back in. I mean, I don't know, I'm not a dentist, but I said, would you be telling this to a, a parent if the child didn't have Down syndrome? And she said, yeah. yes, but you know, whether that was her honest opinion or not, I'm not sure. But, um, so I totally appreciate that. I think parents need to feel empowered in that way. So what's involved to try to confirm a diagnosis of regression and how do you test for it? So right now the diagnosis is clinical. We have eight criteria um, plus that time frame that I was mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's been useful because we don't have anything specific from a testing standpoint. You've not necessarily recommended particular tests as part of the diagnostic criteria. So you could go to a clinic and the doctor could say, I'm concerned for regression because you meet X number of these symptoms. On the opposite end, we created a suggested diagnostic workup. What are the common things that we need to rule out? You know, And I think that, again, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we're only really going down to that clinical diagnosis of regression disorder once we've said, this is an epilepsy. This isn't celiac disease. This isn't your thyroid being out of whack. Um, and then the you have a combination of EEG, blood work, we do recommend an MRI for everybody. And then finally, the last test that we recommend is something called a lumbar puncture. And the reason that's important, even though it's invasive, is that when I test the blood, I can only test what's going on in the body. Uh, the blood-brain barrier protects your brain. It's the reason why when you get a virus, you don't get meningitis. It keeps everything out, and that's good. Okay. But to actually test what's going on in the brain, we have to go past that barrier. And that's why even though it's the most invasive test, it gives somebody like me, a neuroimmunologist, the most information about likelihood of response to immune-based treatments in this condition. Okay. Um, so now does down, or sorry, does regression, does it present differently in those with the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism as compared to those with just Down syndrome? And what about in the typical population? like? Is this even hap? I mean, I'm assuming it does, but is it at the same rate as in the Down syndrome population in the typical population? Yeah, great question. So I think, uh, you know, if you look at the autism literature, for instance, just autism, mm-hmm. there are cases of regression and there were even trials of immunotherapy many years ago. Um, but they, those patients and those studies were very broad. They were not doing a lot of the same, you know, uh, thorough testing that we were doing. And so the studies didn't pan out, but it is likely that there's a similar phenomenon in persons with autism, but it's a much more broad grouping, right? Autism is caused by thousands of genes. Some people have epilepsy, some people don't. Down syndrome is very unique because it's so homogenous in terms mm-hmm. of what the actual cause of um, the phenotype is. In, in terms of the prevalence in persons with Down syndrome and autism spectrum disorder when they're together, we're probably, we we see less of those, but I I do wonder if this is a bias, 
right? Mm -hmm. So if you have further to fall, so to speak, from a cognitive or a functioning standpoint, that's going to be easier to notice where mm -hmm. if you have less and it's smaller and yeah, you, you weren't really toileting yourself, but now you're, you know, going to the bathroom, you know, in the bed all the time, it's a small thing and it may get missed and may not be diagnosed as regression per, per se. But I think that that's going to be a challenge no matter what condition you're looking at. Our, our other mm -hmm. research is in stroke and cerebrovascular disease in persons with Down syndrome. And we know that if you have Down syndrome and autism combined, the chance that you have a stroke at the time you come to the hospital is almost 10 times higher, we think because of the difficulty with uh, expressive language. And you know, if you can't express it, you're actually having mini strokes preceding mm -hmm. that you know, how can we, how can we ever know? And it's not that it's a delay in diagnosis. It's just mm -hmm. that this is something where if you don't have those capabilities, it makes it harder to make that diagnosis, even for somebody who is seasoned and sees persons with Down syndrome with frequency. Yes. So, I mean, you kind of answered it, but I guess on, on what you've seen and what you know, are people with the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, are they at higher risk of getting regression or do you know? I, again, it doesn't seem like it just based on our numbers, but I also think that there are less individuals with Down syndrome and autism coming in for the evaluation mm -hmm. of regression. So yeah, potentially, but yeah, we haven't seen it bore out quite yet. Okay. I can't, that's kind of what I was expecting. So you kind of touched on that you, it's possible that it's an autoimmune disease. I'm not sure if that's the correct term disease, but what causes regression? Like, do they know, is it random or is it even associated to another illness? Like, what do we know? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So, <laughs> you know, we've, we've phenotyped it mm -hmm. now, now we know what it looks like. And okay. the next question was what's causing it. So we've seen that there is a trigger in about a about half of cases. Um, sometimes it's infection. So they okay. get sick within a few weeks and then all of a sudden this seems to pop out of nowhere. And sometimes it's an environmental stressor. Family member moves away, um, a death in the family. Um, we had a few cases where, you know, somebody moved houses, moved schools, right? Um, so that can trigger these events too. And I think that you know, if you take that at face value, you'd say, okay, well, this is just an adjustment problem because grandpa died, grandpa was close to, you know, little Johnny, and that's why, the, the, that's why these problems have developed. But stress triggers the immune system too. We've mm -hmm. known this for, for quite some time. And when you look at persons with Down syndrome, it's not that they have an autoimmune disease, it's that they have a disease of immune regulation. So the, the breaks on the immune system aren't there. And so that's what I think that, you know, a way to conceptualize this is that stress, infection, other things, even if it's just random, anything can kind of push that already tenuous immune system over the, over the hill. And then we have, you know, neurologic manifestations, but it's tough because we still don't know exactly what percent of patients are having autoimmune disease as part of it, right? My clinic is where a lot of people have come because we're, we're the last line. Um, mm -hmm. to do the workup. So I think we have a severity bias in terms of we we're probably seeing the worst of the worst, uh, which is a good thing. We always want to help, but at the mm -hmm. same time, it, it skews our interpretation of the data that we can obtain. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you, you kind of talked about it and because one parent asked, 
like you did say it could be associated to an event or an illness or in your experience could it be linked at all to pans or pandas yeah so it, so right if we're looking at it from an infection standpoint that's all pans and pandas is okay. they you know th that grouping is basically you get a strep infection and then the symptoms develop after that mm -hmm. we call that a post infectious phenomenon okay um I don't think that this condition is pans or pandas. I think okay. that, that that gets diagnosed a lot. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think that the critique in in the pans and pandas literature has been like, you know, we're associating things with strep infections. Saying, has your young child had a strep infection recently is saying, have they drank a glass of water recently, right? Okay. Like everybody's had it. So yeah. it, it makes it makes it hard to know from that standpoint. But mm -hmm. in a way, it doesn't matter. So as an immunologist, okay. my concern is not what triggered the immune system because th that the train has left the station. What I want to know is what the immune system is doing now and why is it in overdrive still, right? Okay. So e whether it's triggered by stress, infection, strep, whatever, my problem is that the immune system is now dysregulated, not mm -hmm. what caused it. And I think that that's where those kind of two fields differ a little bit. For sure, for sure. And... I guess also another question that was asked was, is, is there any correlation that you have seen between environmental toxins or trauma? I mean, you talked about like just stressors in general, like somebody died or something like that. What are you able to comment on that or? Yeah. I mean, I, I would lump trauma in with stressors. So certainly yeah. we have seen some of that. I think that with, we have tested patients for, for heavy metals. We've mm -hmm. tested them for, Cerebral folate deficiency is something that comes up a lot. All of those have been uh, normal so far. We've had one patient that had a slightly low cerebral folate um, mm -hmm. level, but it was not anything that we would treat clinically. And even when we tried an intervention, it did not change the uh, change the uh, patient's symptoms. Oh, okay, okay. And do we know if there are any underlying conditions that might cause regression? Uh, kind of not necessarily the conditions, but right, like this is part of our ruling out process. Mm -hmm. So untreated celiac can actually look like regression. Oh, um, wow. Severe sleep apnea can look like regression. Um, you know, hyperthyroidism uh, or hypothyroidism to an extreme can, can look like this. So our, our job as doctors, you know, with this disease right now is to make sure that none of these other possible explanations are there. And some, a lot of that is just blood work. So it's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, some of them like the sleep apnea require a sleep study. And, and we want to get everything to make sure that there is no other explanation that is reversible. And that's okay. why I keep you using this term diagnosis of exclusion and it's not yeah. to make it harder to reach that diagnosis but there's so many other things that are more common that we need to make sure are not the cause here yes okay that makes total sense but wow it's like you said a lot of it can be done through blood work which is good to know that's that's great now once your child has been diagnosed with regression like what are the treatment options like what do what does it involve yeah, so a lot of it is based on the symptoms and based on the, the results of the test. So, for instance, if you have catatonia or that muscle stiffness, mm -hmm. we use a medicine called Ativan or Lorazepam. And mm -hmm. that's like we would treat anyone, whether you have Down syndrome or not, with that medication. It helps reduce those symptoms. For patients that are having a lot of mutism or expressive language issues, um, antidepressants actually help 
with that a lot wow. more than we would expect. Again, hard to know if it's because of an actual antidepressant effect or if it's like what we see in the stroke literature, where when we give individuals SSRIs or antidepressants right after they have a stroke, their participation in rehab and speech therapy is much greater, right? So again, we don't know the exact mechanism, but it's been used to treat it from both directions. For persons who have hallucinations, delusions, difficulty sleeping, antipsychotics get used quite a bit, mm -hmm. um, you know, to mixed effect, but it does get used. And then I think uh, the, the next big therapy that gets used, which is a, a big gun, is electroconvulsive therapy. And I think that that emerged a lot out of the, is this refractory depression? Is this still psychiatric? Is this just resistant catatonia? And ECT has provided some good benefit, but it's very difficult for patients to get off of it. And, and that mm -hmm. we haven't found a clear explanation for. But was another rationale for us to say, maybe, maybe we're missing something, because most of the psychiatry literature says you do it for you know a few sessions and then you can kind of get off of it. Mm -hmm. And then the last that we've been focused on at CHLA is immune therapy. And from you know what we've been able to put together with our diagnostics is, is that if you have an abnormal MRI or an abnormal lumbar puncture, and it's either or, not both, you have okay. a four times higher likelihood of responding to immunotherapy. Okay. And so that's really important for us because then we can right off the bat stratify who might be you know, of the greatest benefit for this, because all of these treatments come with risks. And that's something that we have mm -hmm. to, you know, tread very lightly on. And is that IVIG? Because that's what I kept seeing. Yeah. So the, 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 the tried and true immune treatment in neurology is steroids. And okay. so we give steroids for pretty much everything. And <laughs> it only improved about 30% of patients. So oh. Uh, we tried IVIG and, you know, in our most recent published paper and one that is upcoming right now, um, our response rate for IVIG is over 90% for patients with the abnormal MRI or, um, or lumbar puncture. And it's still over 80% for individuals who don't. So it's actually responding in both groups, but at a differential, of mm -hmm. course. And so at first we were very rigid about that. I was like, you have to have these findings for me to warrant the risk of trying this treatment. But once we got a 90% response rate, I asked myself, is it even ethical to not try this in other mm -hmm. patients? And we had a similarly very high response rate in that group. But I think that, like I said, with, with every one of these treatments, it's risks and benefits, mm -hmm. cost analysis, and you know, making sure that we obey the core physician you know, rule of do no harm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really fantastic to hear that there's that high rate of success. So that's fantastic. So what happens if it's left untreated? I'm assuming the earlier it's caught, the better. But like, for example, probably about two years ago, I read about a young woman who was 19 and she'd been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. I know now after talking with Dr. Liz, that is absolutely not the case. And I'm guessing that it was probably actually regression. So like, can treatment still be beneficial even if it's years later? So the, the short answer is probably, okay. but there does seem to be a magic window. So our magic window is three years. Okay. After three years, the chance that we find anything on the testing is much lower. And okay. the chance that the patients respond to therapy also seems to start to dip down. So they may respond, but instead of being an 80% improvement, it may be a 20% improvement. Um, so, you know, 
a 20% improvement for somebody who can't toilet themselves or isn't communicating with their family member or is, you know, sitting up at night laughing to themselves, mm -hmm. that may be significant. So, you know, we, we've tried to be respectful. I always counsel families uh, and loved ones about saying, we can certainly give this a shot, but we also have to review the risks and benefits because at a certain point, if we're not getting good bang for the buck, it may not be worth it to continue on these treatments too. But we've, the most distant case has been a decade and a half that we've mm -hmm. evaluated. Um, and then there are other ones that just show up in the emergency room here and don't even know that we're a center that evaluates persons with regression and <laughs> are able to start therapy immediately. So. Wow. So I'm just curious, like, so say a, a young person with a Down syndrome, they got regression, but it was just, I mean, I talked with this one woman not that long ago and her daughter has a dual diagnosis. And she said in her teens that she just kind of went into herself and she's 29 now. And I kind of, the wheels in my head started turning going, I wonder if, if it actually was regression. But you're saying like, so you can't, it doesn't necessarily show up on the tests. Like, is that because it's not there, but even though they still have the effects of it? Yeah, and I think the question would be, you know, what is the sequelae of what has happened and what is active disease, right? And I, and I think the best example might be somebody who has multiple sclerosis, right? You have discrete attacks as time mm -hmm. goes on. If you don't treat those attacks, you get permanent injury, right? And so the mm -hmm. reason why we use treatments to prevent that from happening is that, you know, we want to keep as much healthy brain as possible. If this is inflammatory in nature, even if it's just in a, you know, a percentage of patients, that would be the rationale for kind of treating things. And also a rationale for why at a certain point, you may be dealing with things that are just left over from injury to the brain as opposed to something to actually treat anymore. But if we're still in our infancy, we really don't know everything. And I think that, you know, when research is supposed to be very leisurely and, and slow, and we're supposed to be able to test all these scientific hypotheses one at a time and move on to the next one, I've never felt like I've been in such, such a race to find out what's going on because there's so many families out there who are suffering from this condition. Yes. And that's like when I was making these posts, uh, like so I don't personally know anyone who has a child that's ha that has been affected by regression, but just from what I've been hearing about how devastating it is to the family and obviously to the individual, like I can't, I can't even imagine what that's like. And you kind of touched on it, but like how effective are the treatments like you said around 80 to 90 percent is that across the board or like what's the percentage of efficacy and can our kids recover yeah so we've had a few patients who have gone 100 percent back to baseline those tend to be the early ones that are picked up diagnosed treated all in, se in sequence um you know when, when i use the term improvement that that's the global like this group of patients had, I always judge over a 20% improvement, at the very least. Okay. Um, when you actually get down to the percentages, um, you know, some families may say language is 80% improved, but the catatonia is only 10%, right? Like there's so many different mm -hmm. variables. Um, in our upcoming study, we're using 
something called the Neuropsychiatric Inventory or the NPI. It, it encompasses many different subfields, but I feel like that's a really good way to objectively measure this. I think that when we first started out, our first study on it was very much subjective. We would ask families, what percentage improvement are you seeing in this area, percentage you see in this area? Whereas now using a more objective measure, I think we're gonna be able to quantify things a lot better. Okay, that that's good to hear. Yes, because like, as I mentioned, this one mom, her daughter was eight, like so incredibly young when she was diagnosed. And it's been, I think just over a year, she said, and she's almost back to baseline. Like from what you've seen, like, and I guess uh, approximately how long does it take to see improvements? Or I know you said the earlier it's caught, the better, but what, like after a year, is that, you know, pretty much where they're gonna be? Or like, what what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, the, the rule of thumb in neurology is give it a year. Okay. And you, what you see is what you get. But I'll tell you what, I mean, we've had some of our more difficult to treat patients suddenly have an uptick, you know, when we've changed the therapies around or gone to that fourth or fifth line therapy. Mm -hmm. Another important thing to remember is it depends on what treatment we're doing. Are we doing the, the best treatment for that, you know, patient? I think only recently have we had the data to support that testing actually may help us, you know, provide preferential uh, therapies that may be more or less likely to be helpful for a particular patient. But, you know, it, it's tough because, I mean, we also have historical data of mm -hmm. individuals who were never treated and they got better five years later. They maybe didn't get back 100% to baseline, right. um, but we have many that have kind of this fluctuant course where they reach a nadir of their symptoms all the way down. And then they slowly make a little bit of improvement, but have a new normal is what often gets referred to. Okay. Okay. But that's great that you're still, they're still seeing some improvements, even like years after being like the onset. So I, I have read a few stories on regression. Like you said, I haven't seen a lot about it uh, because it's still somewhat new, but a lot of people have said that once they started treatment, like the improvements, they noticed improvements almost right away. Is that true or has that been your experience? No, I mean, in some situations, it's really dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had, we had one uh, patient where we had started therapy and I think I saw them maybe six weeks after we started and they said, oh, you know, she's playing tennis again. Or she, they said, she's playing tennis. And I said, oh, that's great that she was able to relearn that. She, they said, no, she never played tennis before. And it was like, you know, this is crazy stuff. I think the first few patients we treated with this, I had to pinch myself because I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. And I think maybe I'm just an inner pessimist. And I, <laughs> you know, I was like, well, let's give it a shot. Um, but these are patients who really completely changed. And it's, I always ask families to show me a video mm -hmm. of what, um, what their loved one was doing before the regression. And yeah. it's crazy, you know, cause I see these videos of kids who are dancing and laughing and having so much fun. And then the individual who's sitting across from me in a room is just staring at the, at the wall, not interacting at all. And then mm -hmm. I get to see that happen again. And it's just, wow. it's, it's really remarkable, but you know, it's not to say that every patient we touch is magically better either, right? Yes. Like there are some really long and difficult cases that we take care of, but mm -hmm. our, our goal, no matter what, is we're not going to give up on anyone. We're going to keep marching. And if it requires, you know, uh, more thinking outside of the box, that's what we're, you know, that's what we have to do. Well, that's fantastic.
Wow. Now, once your child has had regression, you know, been diagnosed with regression and they've done the therapy and, you know, let's say maybe it's a couple of years out. Is there a chance that it could reoccur and what would recovery look like, like the second time around? Yeah. So, so at this point, the short answer is, I don't know. Okay. Um, we've only had patients on treatment for a short period of time. So I don't know if the treatments will actually prevent further relapses. Um, historically though, there are some patients that got better and then it happened again, but mm. not as bad. And so there can be this sputtering course as well from a natural history standpoint. Our, our new publication that hopefully will be coming out sooner rather than later um, looked at patients who were weaned off of IVIG. Mm-hmm. So basically they were on it for a period of nine to 12 months. And then we said, we're going to slowly come off of it. So instead of getting it every four weeks, we'll get it every five weeks and then every six weeks and then every seven, and then we'll come off. It's 50, 50, 50% can get off and they retain what they've gained. 50% will have their symptoms come back within a few weeks. Mm. And you know, it's easy. We restart the treatment on them, but we had to test because we didn't know how long to treat for or what would be needed for each patient. But interestingly, going back to the the importance of the testing, I can predict who's going to relapse. So when we look at MRI and lumbar puncture, the patients that relapse were eight times more likely to have those neurodiagnostic study abnormalities. So it, it gave us the data that we needed to say that maybe treatment needs to be longer term and while also saying that, you know, this is really more likely to be an immune issue at this mm-hmm. point, similar to how if you take a patient off of their multiple sclerosis or their lupus treatments, mm-hmm. their disease will get worse. And that's essentially what we were seeing with our regression patients who had those neurodiagnostic study abnormalities. Oh, that's really interesting. It's quite fascinating, I find. Now, you touched on it earlier, like sometimes a life change can bring on the onset of regression but a couple people were wondering and i don't know if you've seen this but people who are living like perhaps more in a group home situation as opposed to living at home with their families is the rate of regression higher in those who are living in a group home situation as opposed to those who are living with their families not necessarily and i and i think this may be another bias point is like you know if you're in a group home and you're, you know, think about the symptoms of of what regression is, you're probably a little bit easier to take care of now, right? And so I do wonder how many of these patients are getting the evaluations. Um, Sometimes, as we've seen in group homes, you kind of show up with somebody who doesn't really know your medical history as well for that one-off appointment once a year. So I think we're probably getting a a bias in that sample population, but I think maybe only five to 10% of our patient population is living in a group home right now, which should be telling that, you know, we really, these are individuals who are probably of the same risk, but you know, Mm -hmm. it may be going missed in that environment. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, I mean, although it's just kind of been in recent years that the medical communities become more aware of regression and Down syndrome, but is there any data that you're aware of with percentages of people who with Down syndrome actually get regression or someone actually even asked if there is any data over the past 20 years about this, but I'm kind of assuming it's probably not the best since it's really only been around 2010. Yeah, we don't, we don't have any long-term data on it. Like I said, I mean, 
there's a sprinkling of reports here and there, but mm-hmm. to make heads or tails of a, of a case report of an individual, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's always hard. So we've tried to be as systematic as we've been able to. And so at CHLA, we kind of have a, a nice group of doctors along the West Coast who've been contributing data. And on the East Coast, uh, Stephanie Santoro, who's unrelated to me, mm-hmm. in spite of having a very awesome last name, um, <laughs> is working with a, a multi-center study over there. And we're collecting very similar data. And I think that that is even further reinforcement that what we're finding seems to be legitimate. Fantastic. Now, is there anything that we as parents can do to help prevent it, like such as supplements, a certain diet? Is there anything that you've seen that would help our kids to prevent or can you prevent this? Yeah, I don't know. Um, And I think that, right, I'm not seeing the ones where it's been prevented. So I think that as we learn the mechanisms for, for what is happening in these individuals, that's where we can start to say, not just this is the treatment for it, but this is a likely way to prevent it. But yeah, I don't think we're there yet for saying what can prevent it. We have had many patients come in on a variety of different diets and nutritional supplements and things of that nature. Um, I've We published this in our report of the 26 individuals who had been on at least a year of supplements or dietary interventions. None had a significant improvement. And I think that sometimes these supplements and different diets get billed as a very you know, this is going to change your child's life, but you Mm -hmm. have to buy into it for a year. That's a year we don't have time to waste. And Mm -hmm. that would be another take-home message is that we we really need to evaluate this as a medical condition and less as a dietary or nutritional problem. Okay. That makes total sense. So that's good to know. Now, although I'm hearing about this more and more, and from many accounts, I've heard about lots of doctors are not necessarily all that familiar uh, with regression in our kids. Uh, A lot of parents wanted to know what we can do to help you with your research. So I I think that the the best thing uh, are are kind of twofold is one is uh, having your doctors chat with us because when we can get the medical records, we can push everything together and really make big picture um, assessments of what is going on. We've had, we've talked to doctors across the country. Um, And many have been receptive. They've sent us samples, they've sent us notes, and it's really helped us understand this condition so much better. And I think on the back end, we'll be opening up a clinical trial in 2023, very early Mm -hmm. 2023, uh, to treat this. Right now, we don't have, you know, uh, any therapeutic that has been studied in any rigor. And so our arms of that study will be lorazepam, which is just Ativan to treat the catatonia, IVIG, which we know now works, and a new medication called tofacitinib, which has been used for other autoimmune diseases in persons with Down syndrome with excellent effects. And so our hope is that that medication may be a more targeted therapy um, that obviously isn't IV, which is kind of our other big issue with mm-hmm. this, this treatment, and maybe the breadwinner here, but we have to study it first. But I think you know, if we look at how the NIH and the FDA move, it's slow. Yeah. But to go from just describing this syndrome to clinical trial in two years is crazy. So the FDA and the NIH are listening to families, to caregivers, and it's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. And I couldn't be, you know, more blessed to be on the receiving end of that and with our collaborators over at the University of Colorado. Wow, that's really fantastic. And 
I don't know if the word relief to hear that, you know, that they're, they're recognizing this, they're moving forward rather quickly because I mean, I'm not any kind of medical professional, but I am aware that sometimes these studies, they just take forever, you know, for various reasons. So, because like you said, time is of the essence for our kids to get this diagnosis. Now, if a parent has a concern or question about regression, where is the best place they can go to get information or can they contact your clinic or what can they do? Because like we talked about earlier is so many doctors, they just attribute it to a down syndrome thing, or they just don't really know all that much about down syndrome. Yeah. So I, I think there's kind of three mechanisms. Um, one is to be organized. Okay. When you go into your visit, write it out, write it out very clearly, chronologically, bring videos, come prepared. I mean, it's, it's almost like you have to think about it as a court case. You know, what, okay. what do you have to do to convince the jury, so to speak? Mm-hmm. So the more organized you can be um, for your you know, new patient visit, which you might only get 45 or, or 60 minutes on a good day. Um, so come prepared and make it easy for the doctor to understand, wow, this is a very big difference. And this is the time frame from which it occurred. Those videos are instrumental to what is going on. Okay. Um, so bring those. Um, the second thing uh, would be show up with a quick facts document. If your doctor's not heard of it, it's a great conversation piece because mm-hmm. it can help introduce the doctor to the literature while also explaining things in a language that most families and caregivers can understand and easily communicate back. And I think the third thing is going to be that, you know, individuals who have regression and the doctors aren't reading those specific articles, we're happy to chat with them. So people can reach out to our research line, which can be in the, in the uh, discussion piece on this one. But I think that, you know, when we were first encountering this and there wasn't a lot of literature, we got on the phone as a medical team and we talked with doctors across the country. And I think that hearing it from another doctor who is evaluating with patients or patients with this condition has been really, really helpful in terms of not, not you know, driving the actual workup, but having other doctors understand on a peer-to-peer basis what we're seeing and, and how they can be helpful. Not everybody agrees that you know, people are going to have different opinions. And at the end of the day, as a treating doctor, you have to be comfortable with the diagnosis, the treatment, the recommendations. But, you know, I think that that's been a helpful piece for us to make sure families are getting the resources that they need. And what is the website that people can go to for the quick facts? Uh, so they're available on the Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group website. If you just type in Bismig and uh, regression, it should be a PDF that pops up. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Like I said, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Dr. John, I really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us today on such, you know, kind of a really scary topic for our parents, you know, and it can be quite devastating to see this in our kiddos, but it's so awesome to see that there there are doctors like you out there who care about our kiddos, who are interested in, you know, learning more about this really devastating condition. So, I know lots of parents are really thankful that you came on today to share what you did today. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm always happy to chat with families. And I think that the biggest thing here is, yes, it is very scary. But even if your child doesn't have this, even if your child never has anything like this, and I hope that that's the case, your knowledge as a parent in 
the community of other persons with Down syndrome, you might be the one who says, you know what, I've heard about this thing, you should take your you know, son or daughter to go get checked out. And I think that as we've become very aware of things like Alzheimer's, as we've become more aware of things like, you know, autism, this is the one where now, because we have a potential intervention target, this is really important. And the more people that know about it, the more people that can, you know, have an open and honest discussion with their doctors about it, the better, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so appreciative of it. And, you know, and the one other thing also I wanted to ask you is, is there a place that parents can go to find out about your different research trials? Like I know you said there's one coming up in 2023. Is there a way that people can, I guess, apply to be on that? Or how does that work? Yeah. So if you email our clinical research line, it's DS, just like Down syndrome, research Mm -hmm. at chla.usc.edu. That's the best way that goes to our clinical research coordinator, me, my nurse. So we can triage if it's a clinical question, a research question. Um, We can put you in the queue for when the clinical trials open. We can provide literature and extra resources for families as well. So we're happy to be of service however uh, we need to. And we're drafting a new website that will have all the information about our (laughs) clinical trial upcoming for when it launches though. So. Oh, fantastic. So maybe we'll have you on again after that trial and to hear what the outcome is, because I think a lot of parents would be very interested in that. Of course. Thank you so much, Dr. John. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories, what's going on in your life, what's important to you. It would also really mean a lot if you could like and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a little review. And you could also give us a couple of stars on Spotify so that we can become more searchable to others in the Down syndrome community. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and we will see you next time.